0: In the last year or two, I've heard more and more Christians express, express fears about the trends they see in uh, various cultural shifts, court decisions, political alliances, academic movements, economic activity, and more. And from time to time, I've expressed my concerns along with them. What will the future hold? We don't even necessarily need to look to the future to see that fellow Christians are facing serious oppression today our brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe are, are facing oppression, persecution, and increasingly Christians here locally are concerned that uh, we too will soon be facing persecution and suffering in a more overt form. That may well be the case. Suffering may be in our future. And if we're called to suffer for Jesus Christ, then how do we suffer Well, How do we suffer with patience and with faith? Where can we learn how to suffer for the glory of God? Well, in Psalm 94, we meet the ancient people of God. And from this psalm, we can learn how saints of old have suffered in faith for the glory of God. God has given us this psalm for our instruction and learning and let me encourage you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 94, if you haven't done so already. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the, the psalm on page 498. 498. Determining the uh, precise context of this psalm, uh, Psalm 94, it's a little difficult. There's no ascription or attribution of author. And the, the crises that, that this psalmist brings up in this psalm are, are frankly, historically kind of generic. From simply taking a look at the few Psalms that precede Psalm ninety four, we can see that the Psalter has been emphasizing God's sovereign rule as the King of the universe. This theme continues to be unveiled in Psalm ninety four. And it is it's actually practically applied for the people of Israel. Still, for us to, to grasp and feel the impact that Psalm ninety four is intended to have, I think that we need to remember the, the kind of the broad history of the Old Testament. God, the creator of the world, created man in his own image. God created Adam and Eve to love and serve him, but sadly they they chose to live their own way and serve themselves. And that's when sin entered into our world and spread to all of mankind. Adam and Eve were created to be God's people, but they turned from him. And after judging the earth and all of mankind in the flood, God began again with Noah and his family. But they too sinned and turned away from God. Then God began again with Abraham. God promised Abraham that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And that his descendants would have a place to live. God promised him a land, a land reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. And as the Old Testament unfolds, Abraham's offspring multiplies. But then they're enslaved in Egypt. God raised up Moses in the book of Exodus to lead his people out of Egypt, and then he raised up Joshua to lead them into the land which he had promised them. And eventually, a kingdom in Israel is set up where men like David and Solomon rule as kings and God's representatives over the people. Many of the Psalms were written by David, but many of them written by others. And it's in this rough historical context where the people of God were living under the rule of an Israelite king that many of the psalms emerged. God's people are living in God's place. But in Psalm 94, the rest, the rest, the calm, the peace, the tranquility of Eden is not found. In Psalm 94, we discover that the people of Israel are restless. They're facing oppressors, and they call out to God for help. And we're going to study Psalm 94 under three headings. First, the folly of the fool... Second, the wisdom of the wise. And third, the judgment of the judge. And if you're taking notes this morning, those three points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. And let's begin with our first point, the folly of the fool. The folly of the fool. And as we do, read Psalm 94, verses 1 to 11. 1 through 11. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they Deserve. O oh Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O oh Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but of breath. Now, the opening verses of Psalm 94 are shocking. And, and what make, they are what make the folly of the fool so profoundly shocking itself, too. Verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 94 are unsettling to our modern ears. They're, they're unsettling to our modern ears because of these words, O Lord, God of vengeance. We start reading Psalm 94, and by the time we get to the fifth word in the Psalm, we're surprised and shocked by what we've just read. We read, Oh Lord, God of vengeance, and we say, wait, 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 God of vengeance? God God of vengeance? And then we keep reading. And it's immediately repeated. Oh, God of vengeance. The God we worship. The God of the Bible. The God who sees and hears and knows just what the wicked are up to is a God of vengeance. He is. And for those who believe, this is actually a comfort. When the word or the idea of vengeance strikes uh, our ears, we, we tend to think of revenge, retribution, retaliation. We think of punishment. And frankly, we're not wrong to think of those things. We're not wrong to think of revenge and retribution and retaliation and punishment when we think of vengeance. We are, however, wrong if we carry along with those conceptions the idea that God is unjust or wrong to carry out His vengeance or to be vengeful. You see, vengeance in, in its holy, righteous, in its pure and undiluted form is actually a just and appropriate response to wrongdoing. Vengeance is not wrong. Rather, it is a just and righteous response to what is wrong or to the wrong that has been done. And this is what makes the folly of the fool so baffling. If the Lord is a God of vengeance, if He does respond to unrighteousness and wickedness with just and therefore fully appropriate judgment, then any contradiction of His character and commands is total and utter folly. It's folly to pursue unrighteousness when the righteous judge will rise up to judge. And here is where the crisis of this psalm begins to emerge. From the perspective of the psalmist and the faithful in Israel, the righteous judge is not presently carrying out his just judgment. The psalmist and the faithful in Israel along with him are calling out to God and calling out for him to reveal his justice. Shine forth. Rise up. Reveal your judgment, O God. That's the the prayer of the faithful follower of God in this psalm. And notice the extent to which the faithful believer recognizes the jurisdiction of God's judgment. What does he say in verse 2? He says, rise up, O judge of the earth. The realm in which God has authority to exercise his just judgment, his vengeance is the entire realm which He created. But the people of God don't presently see His justice. They only see injustice. This psalm, after all, is the sorrowful cry and lament of a people who are crushed, as verse 5 says. The people of God are afflicted. These are God's precious people, and they're suffering and hurting. Their need is urgent. And the psalmist is reminding God, he's reminding God that this is what is happening to his people. The author is almost shoving their desperate lot right in God's face. He's crying out to God, read verse 5, see what word he repeats there for emphasis. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. The psalmist is saying, Lord, this is happening to us, your people. This is a, a desperate prayer from a desperate people. And why are these people so desperate? Well, the psalmist and the people of God are desperate because they're being oppressed. The proud, the wicked, the evildoers are perpetrating evil upon the innocent and vulnerable. Verse 5 there is uh, is, is kind of rather broad. It's a rather broad description of the... Uh, oppression that the people of Israel are facing. They're being afflicted and crushed, uh, probably in various ways. In various ways, the people of God are, as, as a group, they're being oppressed. But then at verse 6, the psalmist specifies even further some of the wickedness that's being perpetrated. Verse 6, they kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. The wicked couldn't prey on a more vulnerable, unprotected people if they tried. They prey on women who have lost their husbands and therefore have no financial stability. They prey on sojourners, those living in a foreign land who are trying to figure out just how to get by. They they murder orphans, those who have no fathers to offer them safety and security from harm. These are the kinds of people that the wicked slay and prey upon. Those who have little to no protection from family or the broader society. What is more? In verse 2, we learn that these oppressors are proud. In verse 3, we learn that they exult in their wickedness. In verse 4, we learn that they are arrogant and boastful. What's worse than a bully who pushes you around? One who gloats about it. The, The wicked seem to rejoice in their wickedness. However, we learn from the psalmist that the pride of the wicked is not ultimately aimed at gloating over their victims. No, the pride of the wicked takes its aim ultimately at God. Look at how they speak about God in verse 7. The Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. It's here that that we see the heart of the folly of the fool. The wicked operate from a a fundamentally foolish disposition. They live as though God is not watching and that if He is, that He's really rather indifferent to what's going on in the world. They live as though God does not care about His people. That phrase, the God of Jacob, connects God in a relationship with His people. But the fool thinks that God has forsaken and abandoned His people. The reality is that the wicked have no idea who God is. They clearly don't know him. After all, the psalmist makes clear through a series of rhetorical questions that God does indeed see and perceive. The psalmist even calls the wicked, or in his words, the dullest of people. I love it. In one of the translations, it says the dunderheads. The dunderheads. You dunderheads. You don't know. He calls the dullest people to remember that God designed the ears that we have. Of course he hears about the iniquity that they're perpetrating. God formed our eyes and gave us sight. Of course He sees the crimes that they're committing. He's the one who gave mankind minds and mental faculties to receive instruction, rebuke, and knowledge. Of course He knows their innermost thoughts. The folly of the fool is apparent just by their simple lack of recognition of these basic realities. The ultimate folly of the fool, though was not in their failure to recognize that God can see and hear and understand and know what they're really up to, but in their failure to recognize what the psalmist recognized in verses 1 and 2. God has the power and authority to judge the whole created world, the whole created order. And the folly of the fool is to say, God's not really involved in this world. He doesn't really see what's going on here or care what I'm doing. He's not going to do anything about it. Without knowing that the true God and judge of the earth is a God of vengeance, the folly of the fool seems so wise. Without any knowledge of judgment, retribution, or righteous vengeance upon our wrongdoing, it seems wise to live for ourselves. Now before moving on, I want to make just three points of application reflecting on the folly of the fool. And the first is simply this. Don't follow the fool in his folly. If you are prospering due to wicked schemes, you need to know that the Lord sees and He knows and He hears exactly what you're doing. Simply because He hasn't yet come down on you like a ton of bricks doesn't mean He will not. He is patient, but He will not forever delay His justice and judgment. Do not take his apparent inaction toward you as a sign of indifference or approval. That would be utter folly. Don't continue on in wickedness and unbelief. His patience with you is an opportunity for you to turn to him, to find forgiveness and mercy. Don't follow the fool. A a second point of application I want to, I want to encourage those of you who are suffering and, and feel as though you are in a desperate position before the Lord to call out to God. If your situation is desperate, then pray to God out of that desperation. Share your struggles with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us serve you in your time of need. Call out to God. Pray to Him third point of application I want to make here is that we as a church should be reaching out and caring for those who are part of our membership and who are vulnerable I heard a a wonderful story an encouraging story from uh, a sister in Christ a sister who's a part of this congregation uh, earlier this week about how the the church that she was growing up in the women of her church would would gather uh, at some point during the week perhaps once a month or a couple of times a month and they would gather together at church and they would go out and they'd visit uh, the shut-ins of their congregation. And after they went and visited the homebound, they'd return back and they'd pray for them and, and have a, a lunch together. Um, that, that just seems like a wonderfully warm and encouraging way to, to care for those in the church who are vulnerable and in need of care. Uh, let's be sure that we're looking out for those in our midst who are most vulnerable and thinking about ways in which we can protect them from the wicked who would wish to take advantage of them. Believe it or not, there are still wicked persons in this world and even in our community who do prey upon those who are vulnerable. And we as a church should be doing our parts to, uh, to help and protect the vulnerable members, members of our church in ways that are appropriate and loving. The folly of the fool is to fail to recognize and live in light of the fact that God does see, hear, and know. And more than that, to fail to recognize and live in light of the fact that God is righteous and that His perfect timing He will execute His just judgment. If that's the folly of the fool, if that's how they live, then what's the wisdom of the wise? How do the wise live? What is the course of wisdom? How will people who have been made wise by God's grace live? What's the nature and character of the wisdom of the wise? And this is the second point that we want to consider together from Psalm 94, the wisdom of the wise. And as we do, read Psalm 94, verses 12 to 19 now. Verses 12 to 19. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until... A pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake His people. He will not abandon His heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would, have, would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips Your steadfast love, O Lord, help me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. The the words of, of verse 12 are strange words to the fool, but they're welcome words to the wise. The wise can see in difficulty and suffering the loving discipline of God. You see, discipline is both formative and corrective we tend to think of only the corrective kind of discipline, uh, kind of moving us back into the right way. But discipline is also forming, it, formative. It shapes us. And that God is, is using our experience, but preeminently His Word, to teach us and shape us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Through discipline, He's forming us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. What the people of this psalm were experiencing was not punishment for sin... The discipline that they were experiencing was not corrective, but formative. Their, their discipline was a providentially ordained trial to deepen their trust in God. Now here's the thing. We don't like discipline. Who does? And, and in some ways, I, I almost, almost, I almost feel as though the Bible gives us license not to like discipline. When it says in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 11... For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. The author of Hebrews, he's admitting that no one finds discipline pleasant. But listen to what he says in the second half of that verse. Second half of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. He says, but later, it's the discipline, later the discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God disciplines those whom He loves. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. He trains them in righteousness by His discipline. Hebrews 12, 11. God disciplines us for our good so that we may share in His holiness. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. Do you see how blessed we are if we endure God's discipline? Do you see how loved by God we are if we endure His discipline? It's counterintuitive is true. Charles Spurgeon said of God's discipline that we are blessed however much our outward circumstances may argue the reverse. What we experience outwardly does not tell us the whole story. We should remember that in verse 10 of Psalm 94 that the psalmist said that the Lord does discipline, rebuke, instruct, and teach. Though the fool thought that God could not hear The reality is is that they were the ones who were deaf. Their ears, they had stuffed up. The ears which God had given them, they had stuffed up with unbelief. And the folly of the fool was to refuse to listen to God and to depend upon his own wisdom for life. But part of the wisdom of the wise is to depend upon the law of the Lord, the Word of God, for directing his path. The path of wisdom is to listen to the Lord. The wise do not live according to their own wisdom, but God's wisdom. And we find that wisdom in His Word, or His law, as the psalmist says there in verse 12. The Lord is indeed active in this world. And those who have turned their ears toward God and His law will receive rest from days of trouble. Christians, the people of God do face trouble in this world. It's not a matter of whether or not we will face trouble. It's only a matter of when however even when we do face trouble our God is with us to give us rest the psalmist he he may be trying to communicate the Lord will in his kindness provide momentary rest from the trouble of the wicked but my sense is that he means perhaps that and something more Uh, given the trajectory of the psalm which looks forward to a final judgment where God will most fully and finally subdue all rebellion I think that the rest from trouble promised here, is most likely a final rest in heavenly glory. The notion of the, the preparation of a pit for the wicked also plays well into the outcome of the rest being final. The wicked will one day finally fall into that pit where they will never be able to harm the people of God again. Now let's consider the two outcomes here. God is preparing rest for His people while at the same time he is preparing a pit for the wicked. God is preparing his people for rest, even while they endure and experience trials in this life. This is mentioned elsewhere uh, in other places in Scripture. So, for example, the Apostle Paul, in Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, uh, Paul writes, So we do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do you know what Paul said God was preparing us for through our suffering? The purpose of our suffering in this life is so that we might be prepared for the eternal weight of glory in the next You can't bear that eternal weight of glory until you have been prepared for it. Through our trials, God is preparing us for heaven. At the same time, God is preparing a pit for the wicked. Everyone wants to know what their future holds. And friends, the Bible tells us, tells everyone what their future holds. Either rest or a pit. That's what your future holds. Either rest or a pit. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're you're not a, a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, then I want to warn you about the pit before you. I don't want you to fall into it. Psalm 94 verse 13 tells you your horrific future if you do not turn from your sins and turn to God. God will either give you rest in heaven or He will give you no rest from eternal self-conscious torment in hell. In Revelation chapter 14 verses 10 and 11, we're told that the wicked will drink the cup of God's wrath and that they will have no rest, no rest day or night in the pit of hell. The reality is that we've all sinned. We are all wicked. We may not have physically murdered another person, but according to Jesus, if we've hated another person in our heart, We've committed murder in our hearts, and we're all worthy of the pit. We're all deserving of hell, but the good news of the Bible is that God sent His one and only most beloved Son to live the life that we've not lived, a life that was not at all worthy of hell or the pit, a righteous life, a sinless life. He obeyed God at every turn, every moment, every thought, was perfectly righteous. Think about your thoughts. You know that they're not always perfectly righteous. Jesus' thought was perfectly righteous. All of his thoughts, all of the time. He's a wonderful Savior. He lived a perfectly righteous life that we have not lived. And yet, in love, he gave his life up on the cross. He took the hellish torment of God. For the sins of all of those who would have returned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. And three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And now Jesus invites us to come to Him, to be saved from the pit, to be saved from God's wrath, and to follow Him and to receive rest in our hearts and souls and rest. At home, finally, and hit with Him in heaven. This is what Jesus invites us to. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior today and find rest for your soul in Him. And if you want to think more about that, more about what that means for your life today and tomorrow and every other day the Lord gives you here on this earth, I'd love to talk with you about that. I'll be at the door after the service. Talk with a friend that you came with this morning, or a family member that you came with. There's nothing more important that you can think about than what it means to find rest for your soul in and through Jesus Christ. Psalm 94, 13 tells us that God will ultimately save His people. Why will God ultimately save His people from eternal suffering and give them eternal joy? Well, it's because of who He is and what commitment He has made to His people. Consider verse 14. For the Lord will not forsake his people. Don't you love that certainty? He's saying that to you, Christian. He will not forsake you. The Lord will not abandon his heritage. He forsook his son so that you would never be forsaken. Christian, this is his love for you. He will not do it. The psalmist, he's he's preaching to the people of God. He's reminding them and us that God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. He will do what He says. He will continue to be faithful to the people whom He set His love upon. And the wisdom of the wise is to have faith in the God who is unfailingly faithful. And just as surely as our God will not abandon us, so His justice will return. Verse 15. The Scriptures teach that on the last day, the Lord Jesus Christ will rise from His throne to judge the living and the dead. And on that day, He will right all wrongs. And the upright in heart, those who have believed in Him, trusted in Him for salvation, they will follow His justice. In other words, they, they will concur with His judgment. They will follow His righteous judgment with their approval and they will finally follow the ways of perfect justice themselves. The, the, the people of God today are sinners and we struggle to live just and righteous life, lives but when we are finally in glory with Jesus Christ, we will perfectly follow His justice with perfected, upright hearts, Which means, during our time on Earth now, we patiently and faithfully wait for God to rise up to judge. Part of the wisdom, part of the wisdom of the wise, is to wait patiently upon God's perfect and final justice in faith. In, in verse 16, The the psalm takes a personal turn. Here the psalmist turns and speaks in the first person. Did you notice that? He says, Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against the evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Now all of what the psalmist says is undoubtedly true for him individually but it also serves as a model and example for the people of God who are suffering. Here the psalmist shows us w- what it individually and personally looks like to walk in wisdom in the midst of trials. And he shows us honestly too doesn't he? It's not necessarily easy, is it? We just consider the the language he used rather he was He said that he's sorely discouraged, so discouraged that he thought his soul would live in the land of silence. That's a euphemism for death. He thought that his foot was slipping, that he was in danger of falling down the cliff to death. The psalmist was personally in the midst of great trouble, yet the Lord proved himself trustworthy in the midst of it. At every turn, the Lord was with him. He was right there with him. The Lord was his help. The love of the Lord held him up from danger. The Lord comforted him when the cares of his heart were many. See, this is the path of wisdom, to trust the Lord in the midst of trouble. And when you think about verses 16 to 19, who do you think of? I think of Jesus. Can't you hear the words of this psalm on the lips of Jesus? Can't you hear Jesus saying or praying these words when he's being wrongly accused, falsely condemned, and wickedly oppressed? He was reviled and suffered. And can't you hear him praying to God, Lord, rise up for me against the wicked. Stand up for me against evildoers. Be my help, O God, or I will live in the land of silence. Father, hold me up with your steadfast love. The cares of my heart are many, many. Cause your consolations to cheer my soul. Help me to endure the cross for the joy set before me. Just as the, the psalmist provided the people of Israel with an example of what it looks like to trust in the midst of trials, so Jesus also left us with an example. Consider the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 23. Peter writes, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's what Jesus did, Peter says. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Just as the psalmist entrusted himself to God in his darkest hour, so did Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the ancient people of God, found our Heavenly Father trustworthy in their greatest trials. Brothers and sisters, our Savior found our Heavenly Father trustworthy in His greatest trial. Christian, God will prove Himself trustworthy to you in your greatest trial. He will not Forsake you. He will not abandon you. In the midst of our troubled days, we need to look forward to the last day, the last and final day. We need to entrust ourselves to God. This is the wisdom that the wise live out. They trust in God. Some trust in horses and chariots, some in money and fame and power and pleasure. But the wise, the wise trust in the name of the Lord our God because he is the God who has steadfast love unfailing love toward his people he's the one who holds his people up in the midst of trials the folly of the fool is to live in defiance of the judge of the earth the wisdom of the wise is to entrust themselves to the judge of the earth and so now we turn and consider the judgment of the judge This is the third point that we want to consider briefly from Psalm 94, the judgment of the judge. And as we do, read Psalm 94, verses 20 to 23 with me. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. In verse 20, the psalmist raises a rhetorical question. Can the wicked be allied with you, those who frame injustice by a statute? And the answer is clearly no. In the words of of one commentator, the corrupt Judgment thrones of this earth cannot be allied with the throne of heaven. They may pursue unrighteousness. They may persecute God's people. They may prey upon the widow, the sojourner, and the fatherless. They may afflict you. They may band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. It's exactly what they did with Jesus. But their justice is not the Lord's justice. Their justice is unrighteous. And God's justice is is righteous. God's answer to the unjust death of His Son by the rule of unrighteous men was to vindicate His name and raise Him from the dead. If there ever was an utter reversal of an unjust judgment by fallen men, it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even in that unjust situation, God allowed His Son to suffer because what they intended for evil... God meant for good, for our eternal good. Even in the midst of this desperate situation, the psalmist reaffirms his faith once again in verse 22. He's kind of preaching to himself over and over again. Keep trusting. He says, but the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. When we're in the midst of of temptations and trials, we must entrust ourselves to God and keep entrusting ourselves to God. We believe and keep believing. We persevere and keep persevering. We trust and keep entrusting as long as life endures. In faith, we keep taking God as our shield and the rock of our refuge as long as life endures. The nature of the psalmist's faith is to flee to God in times of trouble while at the same time leaving justice and vengeance in God's hands. The psalmist in faith, believes the God who said in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 41, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. That's a promise to the wicked. The psalmist and we should believe God's promise. We should believe that God, in His due time, will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. Again, here in verse 23, we're confronted with something our culture would like to wish away, disregard, even despise our culture and society chase at any notion of divine judgment and especially a notion of divine judgment which is irreversible and final just look at how psalm 94 ends it ends with a confident firm irreversible irreversible declaration the lord our god will wipe them out there's no coming back from that judgment when god comes to judge the earth there are no more second chances When the judgment day comes, the judgment of the judge is final and irreversible. The fool mocks and laughs and contests that notion. No, 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 that that, that can't be. The wise thank God for His mercy toward them because they know they're deserving of judgment. The wise thank God too because they know that on that day they will no longer face injustice or affliction or oppression at the hands of the wicked. We don't need to look hard to see the injustice in this world. But praise God that we do not need to look far to find God's comfort and promises in the midst of waiting for His vengeance. And this is where I want us to conclude. In our days of trouble and suffering, we can and should learn from the saints who first sang and prayed Psalm 94. More than this, we can and should look to and learn from our Savior who fulfilled this psalm by entrusting himself to our God and rock in the midst of his affliction. Christ found the Father worthy of trust in his earthly trials, and we will too. Let's pray together.